You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. I think the beluga is an awesome, awesome creature to celebrate the Arctic and the subarctic. Yes. I mean, they are one, they're the only whale species to... What can they teach us? And the concern is basically uh, lack of sea ice, warmer waters is going to impact negatively plankton populations. And that's the, the, the bottom base, the whole food pyramid. Oh, that's like the web, base of it all. Yes. Everything. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. We've been wanting to do this one for a while, Angie. We've been waiting a year, I think. I know. We have been yeah. waiting a long time to talk about Baby Beluga. I know. You know that song? I know. I, I, I remember you mentioned it at some point, maybe in the Narwhal episode. I don't, yeah, You did probably. mention that song before, yeah. Yeah. But ever since Narwhal, I was like, you're like, we got to do Beluga. We got to do Beluga. And I said, well, we got to wait till Christmas time, roughly. We're getting there. We're getting there. You know, it's, it's after Halloween. So now it's time to start getting ready for Christmas. Well, yes, it's a great transition as some of my friends in uh, the northern U.S. states have already gotten mm-hmm. some snow. And it's not sticking around too much, but it's a pretty white little blanket outside and reminding everybody that winter is coming. And so mm-hmm. I think the beluga is an awesome, awesome creature to celebrate the Arctic and the subarctic. Yes. I mean, they are yes. one, they're the only whale species to be circumpolar, right? And hang out mm-hmm. in that cold, cold, cold water and... They have several nicknames. White whale is one of them, along with some other fun ones we'll talk about today, like sea canary and, of course, the melon head, which is not derogatory. It's actually, it really makes sense once we talk a little bit more about their mm-hmm. physiology. But yeah, they're just really, really beautiful, interesting wow. animals that have actually come up in the news recently. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, it's going to be a fun pod today for sure. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, the physiology is is amazing with these whales, and you know, I putting this together, and I did put a note in here to say, you know, good day to all of our Aussies and Kiwis and everybody in the Southern Hemisphere that listens to the podcast. We know you're going into summer. You're lucky. It's warm. You know, beautiful weather. <laughs> yeah. We will cover probably a species. Yeah, I'm thinking in a few weeks from Australia, I've got one peg that I got to convince Angie to do. So we understand it's getting warm for you, but for the Northern Hemisphere, you know, it, it's the holiday season. And, and also for our, our listeners that don't celebrate Christmas, you know, just in December, it's the holiday season, festive season in, you know, uh, the United States and, and Europe and around there. So, so that's why we do this. But we did belugas a little early because 
we should have been saving this for December because why, Angie? I mean, why did we do a whale this week? Oh, because you and I both sat in on an interview with our mm-hmm. jaws wide open for pretty much the whole interview in awe as we sat there and listened and talked with Paul Watson from seashepherd.org. It was nuts. It was awesome. Yeah. I had goosebumps. We were speechless. It was, I, you're right. I was wowed. Yeah. We were, and he, amazing speaker. You know, one of those interviews where you just let him do the talking. Oh, I just sat back and drank my tea. I felt like, I, I mean, I'm glad we get to share it with the world here this week. Yeah. Uh, but in the same instance, I was just like in a bubble. And it was cute because since we're on screen, I could see you too, Chris. I could see your face. And I'm like, yeah, he doesn't make that face that often. Like, that's like the super, <laughs> holy cow, yeah. my mind is blown. Like, this is amazing. Yeah. This is like, we, we were like living in a moment. Like, this is, this is yes. like historic. Yes. So it was, it's it's a fun interview. It's so informative. And although a lot of people are going to be familiar with Sea Shepherd uh, because of their whale wars that have been featured on Animal Planet and just the incredible work they do, frontline ocean defense. Uh, But there's so much, so much more to it. And we're going to talk more about Sea Shepherd uh, at at the end of the podcast when we highlight our Mm -hmm. conservation organization of the week. But Yes, it's been a very, very good week for Chris and I so far. And uh, by talking with Paul, it made us really want to focus on a whale that we haven't covered yet uh, that is always in need of our attention and ocean conservation. Yeah, I mean, it was, and you know, I've I've met some famous people, celebrities, Academy Award winners, you know, uh, and I've always found they're just normal people. And, you know, it's not like, you know, I'm wild anymore. That's worn off on me because I've, I've met so many throughout my life. But him, like he's I a mean, real life pirate. He's I was gonna say, how many mind. pirates have you talked to? Come on, <laughs> none, none, exactly. An absolute legend, like you said, dude. He's just and, just so tough. Like, oh, I you know, I was almost arrested here, or there, but no, they don't have anything really on me. <laughs> I'm and, on Interpol, and <laughs> yeah, it's just, just it was incredible. Oh, like just his opening story about why he got into anti whaling with you know this is a founder of Greenpeace, so it's a must listen to interview. Very insightful, very, I would say, motivating. Again, it's one of those interviews where you get we got off and it's just like, I got to keep doing this. I got to keep doing this podcast. I need to reach as many thousands upon thousands of people as I can with these stories. Absolutely. And I think that that's the thing. It's inspiring. And he has such a long history of fighting for wildlife, wild spaces, wild places that it's just it's just super key uh, for us to learn the next generation uh, to keep his message going. And I want to dedicate this week to Christy S who joined us on Patreon this week. So thank you, Christy, for supporting us and the education that we're doing, you know, helping us get this message out. Like, especially when you listen to a Paul Watson and we've got some other great interviews lined up. Uh, coming out. So just what Patreon is for some of our listeners that we keep saying it each week. You can go on the Patreon website. You can sign up for, like I say, a nice cup cup of coffee a month for $5 US. And that supports us. And that money goes into supporting us paying our bills as far as, you know, paying for the website, paying for Podbean and everything we do with this. You know, we actually, Angie and I were talking, we really need to get our website updated now that we've had, gosh, we have 
unofficially like 240 episodes. Uh, our official 200th episode's coming up. So we really need to, to get a website designer in there. You know, so it's easier for you to find species that you want to learn about. But anyways, thank you for your support. Thank you for our Patreon supporters. We're our latest poll. I'll be closing here soon, but it looks like we're going to be sending some money off to the Jane Goodall Institute. So that would be good. You know, that's a good one. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, and then we just did our post, uh, post show for bats and Angie and I talked a lot about bats and COVID. What's the data out there. So if you want to check that out for our Patreon only supporters. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you everyone. And once again, I know $5 a month can be tight for a lot of people. So something else you can do to help us out is share these episodes. There has to be a beluga lover in your family somewhere that will want to learn more about them. Um, and also you can give us a review on iTunes. It uh, takes a few minutes to just write something nice about us. Uh, and uh, it just takes a few moments to write a couple words about how you recommend the podcast or you can also give us uh, just five stars. All of all of that helps us uh, be more recognizable in um, iTunes and other platforms as far as if you Google type in animal podcast or something like that. So we really appreciate it. Uh, so far, we don't have any for November. So why not be the first? You know, I cannot wait till we get to behavior because watching some of these beluga videos and, and some of the cool stuff they do and then talk about this physiology with this big melon head right like well I, I i am dying to get into behavior and their intelligence yeah. and their vocalization yeah. and echolocation and just all of this uh and i have some fun facts for you that'll probably like really mm. surprise you as far mm. as some of their maternal behaviors and just really cool things but i actually need to spend some time on describing this animal because yeah as yeah. much as i loved reading about it just going over the literature and looking at photos and watching videos and reading different articles. I think every time I pull the picture up, they got cuter and cuter and cuter and more charismatic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Chris, after researching belugas this week, it made Bailey the beluga, the character from Finding Dory, the Disney movie, so much right. more like yeah, yeah. lovable and like and accurate too. Like you never yeah, know yeah. in some of these movies, like, oh, are they just uh expanding on certain behaviors or making them seem larger than life because it's a it's a cartoon. But no, no, Bailey the Beluga does a lot with her echolocation to help Dory find her way out of the aquarium and into the aquarium and all these different things. And I really think that a lot of the like the personality traits hold up as I was reading more yeah. about yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah how they're kind of just yeah. calm and like yeah. easygoing most of the time. So yeah, it, it's just so fun, but it's just their faces, Chris. They have mm. a lot of expressions and we're going to, there's actually ph physiological reasons around mm -hmm. that as far as their melon and their neck, but in general, they're just beautiful. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it, they're, they're hard to miss. They are known as a white whale because they literally have milky white skin, like as white as it gets. And because of that, belugas are the only whale species that are entirely white. Now, the babies are born gray, uh, but that fades away and it turns into a whitish color with age. So, and now the babies are born gray in color, but as they age, they turn more of the milky white color. And it's just, it's a really striking white. But I think if we're working our way down from their face, of course, to their tail, you just can't beat their head. Uh, the beluga head is mm. its totally unique compared to any of the other mm -hmm. whale species as they have a melon 
that's really bulbous, really round, and it like looks like lobed. And depending on where you live, melon is sometimes a term forehead, right? So mm-hmm. it it really actually is not derogatory for it to be called like a melon-headed uh, whale or anything like that because it, the melon is the anatom- correct anatomical name for this really faddish area that I have a whole PowerPoint slide on. <laughs> <laughs> coming up in a little bit oh my gosh just, i was like counting slides uh, i'll try to keep i knew you brief, would but i, I knew you would. it was I'm, i, I mean i think this is one of my top ones it's just there's just such a yeah. fun cool species but anyways so they have this round head that makes them just look kind of cartoon like uh and then they have little black eyes and it almost looks like they have a permanent smile on their face and as we'll learn when we're talking about the melon the melon can actually move So there is that too, like that it is not uh, just in the cartoons, like there really is some, not exaggerated, but subtle movements of the melon that helps give them a little bit more of a characteristic feature. And the reason this melon can move a little bit is for echolocation. And so I know Chris, I'm sure he has a couple slides on echolocation because we just love to talk about communication, that physiology of living in the Arctic, the ice cold, dark waters, like how do they hunt and how do they find food? So the melon, this fat area is really in charge of a lot of the echolocation. And so, yeah, it's, that's going to be, it's going to be a good one. But, and so moving down their back towards their tail, what's really interesting is beluga whales don't have a dorsal fin. And so a dorsal fin is that one on top that like, if you think of an orca, you think of that dorsal fin piercing out of the water first. Well, the beluga doesn't have that. Uh, and in fact, what it does have is like a, what they call a small ridge that runs along the, along its back that we're going to talk a lot about when we get to cold water adaptations and why researchers speculate that they have this ridge instead of, quote unquote, a normal dorsal fin. Uh, and then if you go to their pectoral flippers, right, those are, the, those are going to be the flippers in the front uh, or forelimbs, if you will. They are small in general uh, to their body size, if you will. But they're rounded and they're almost like a paddle. And towards the tips, they almost uh, curl upwards because they basically help the beluga navigate left and right and change directions. Um, And also, interestingly enough, swim backwards, which are I think they're the only whale species that can swim backwards, which is super cool. I didn't Mm -hmm, know that. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then as we head to their tail... Their fluke or the tail fin, if you will, it basically looks like two oars or two lobes. Uh, of course, it doesn't have any bones. It's made up of uh, fibrous tissue, the connective type tissue. Um, but it's basically very distinct the way that it like curves. And so if you ever see a white curved tail that comes out of the water, you'll know that that's a beluga. Yeah, Nancy, it, it's true because they are white, but they have that yellow hue. I was reading, you know, because sometimes, you know, I've I've seen them under human care, but they do sometimes have that yellow hue. And in a reading, that's just the there's algae growing on them. Mm-hmm. But they do every year shed their skin, right? So they go through a molting phase where that algae is like shed, and then they they're kind of white again until that that comes back. Yeah, which but, is something yeah. I think more about like with seals, but yeah, we don't really yeah. think about that for a uh, species of whale. So very fascinating. No. Yeah, it was fascinating. But, you know, just sizes real quick. I mean, there is sexual dimorphism. So the males are upwards of 30% bigger, 25 to 30% bigger than females. So that means males can be as long as 20 feet, you know, two stories of a house, you can think, or six meters. 
Females, 14 feet or just over four meters. Uh, males can weigh up to two tons or 4,000 pounds, and that's 1,900 kilograms, where females can be up to 2,600 pounds or 1,200 kilograms. So, you know, they're, they're big, and people that have seen them, you know, they're not small whales or porpoise size. But, you know, they're, they're not obviously, you know, sperm whale or blue whale or, you know, some of these baleen whales that, that we think of. And Chris, I also just have to point out, too, as we here in North America move towards the winter months and the holiday season where we eat a lot usually and we are able to wear sweaters and kind of pack on the pounds and hide it, belugas are ready to show off their blubber in every way, shape and form. In fact, 40 to 50. 50% of their body weight is in fat. Yeah. And that's yeah, higher yeah. than any other cetaceans uh, out there. And it makes sense because they are in the Arctic. They're in the cold waters. But that's about 30% of their body weight. So if you think if you're mm-hmm. if you're familiar at all with like the body mass index and if you've ever done one of those those BMI tests where they pin, <laughs> they, they no. I know they they pinch your fat or whatever and uh yeah, that's not a number you want to find you, you want to see on that scale. So No, no. no unless no, you're a beluga, yeah. but if you're a beluga that's totally normal. Yeah, it is. It is. And it helps them stay warm, you know, because they they are living in the Arctic. I mean, when you look at their range they, you know, like Angie said in the beginning, circ- circumpolar, so pretty much around and under the sea ice in the in the Arctic Circle, uh, you know, Norway, Russia, obviously North America, parts of Greenland and Canada. They North Atlantic, something's going on in the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know what it is because this is another species where we don't find them ranging that much into the Atlantic or North mm-hmm. Atlantic. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm going to find that out because this is another species where I don't know if it's because Europeans in a few hundred years like killed everything off. I don't know. They drove everything out, but they don't really range in the North Atlantic, but they are in the North Pacific and the other parts of the Arctic, which makes them an Arctic specialist. So they're very specific, right? I mean, very important part of the Arctic ecosystem. Oh, yes. I mean, so much so because the going rule is if you think around the equator, it has the most abundance of species when you think of whether it's animals, plants, insects, all that. And then as we move north and south, it gets fewer and fewer. And so we're talking about belugas and how they live and survive in Arctic and subarctic oceans. They have a huge role on their food chain as far as basically the different types of fish and critters they eat and how they are intertwined in that role. You're right, Angie. And I just read that, you know, they're they're, uh, one of the species you can look at. They're a great indicator of the health of the ecosystem up there that when they are flourishing, it's a good indicator, right? Yeah, I I learned this new term. It's called a centennial species. And it's basically an indicator of environmental health and changes. And they're a pretty long-lived marine mammal. And it's at the top of the food web. And as we mentioned, the beluga has a lot of blubber and fat storage. So it can be pretty well studied as far as how much pollutants are stored in its fat. And belugas are known to congregate sometimes in like rivers and estuaries, depending on what season it is. And so it can give humans a good idea or indicator about the chemical substances and the pollutants that are in those waterways, including lead, mercury, DDT, 
and of course, PCBs. Now, a lot of these chemicals have been outlawed, right? Like DDT and a lot of PCBs, but I mean, they, they're just still super prevalent in several species and even, even, even in us humans, uh, depending on where you live, uh, as far as levels, because there's one of these chemicals that just like their half-life is like basically nothing. I I don't know off the top of my head, but they don't, they last a really, 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 really Mm -hmm. long time in the environments they persist in. And so if belugas are thriving and not dying off all of a sudden, then that's a great sign that the waterways are cleaner. Uh, and it, and when beluga carcasses do wash up, researchers can kind of tap into the blubber and, and see what contaminants are in there and then also make, and then also learn more what might be happening to the creatures below them on the food chain, to the fish that we eat and other things like that. Yeah, no, I mean, the ocean pollution, I mean, I know we've detailed it a lot, and we're going to keep detailing it because it is such a major, major issue with the plastics in the ocean. But I took a little different tack. I just, again, approached the Arctic ice. I know we've we've talked about this. This is going to be quick. It's just an update because I think in the walrus and narwhal episodes, we did talk about the the shrinking sea ice. And, you know, we've talked about the poles are warming faster than the rest of the world compared to the equator. So I just saw this a few weeks ago in 2020 that scientists have have found that the Arctic sea ice has not frozen for the first time ever in the month of October. So what that means is there is ice at the top of the, the, the pole, but what it meant was like refreezing. Like it usually starts mm-hmm. around, I think September. I remember talking about the abundance of sea ice and what it meant. I mean, we go back to polar bears. That was like episode eight or nine, uh, way back when we talked about sea ice. I mean, just in three years that the massive reduction is, is huge, but you know, that was very alarming. And just to give you some numbers. So in 2000, 20 years ago in October, in the beginning of October, there was roughly 6 million square mi- square kilometers of sea ice. By the end of October, that was up about 8 million square kilometers. So it grew over the month of October to uh, million square kilometers. Right now in 2020, it's about four, four and a half million square kilometers in holding. Maybe a little bit of freezing towards the end of the month, but not much. So this is the first year where they are not seeing that, that pack ice grow. And, you know, in in polar bears, and maybe we have to redo another polar bear episode in a year or two, you know, and and update it. They depend on that pack ice. Walruses depend on that pack ice to survive out there during the hunting Uh, seals, you know, all the seals up there that are having pups on the sea ice. So when the sea ice doesn't form, it is catastrophic for many, many species. Now, the, this year, what happened was Russia had a really unusual warm summer, which again is the new normal. We saw at the beginning of 2020 with Australia burning down, they're really hot, hot uh, January. Well, the summer months, well, Russia had something very similar and we'll have to cover species up in, in Siberia because... I'm worried about all the carbon that's being released by the the permafrost melting, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and the viruses that they're finding. And, and I think they just revived like a 30,000 year old parasite that was frozen in the permafrost. Like, 
they're finding this stuff. It's, it's just, it's, it's really crazy. Uh, another thing, Atlantic ocean has been the warmest it's been in 3000 years. So the, the Atlantic's warmer than normal. And the concern is basically uh, lack of sea ice, warmer waters is going to impact negatively plankton populations because sea ice carries nutrients for, for certain species of plankton. And that's the, the, the bottom base, the whole food pyramid. Oh, that's like the web, base of it all. Yes. Everything. <laughs> if they, yeah. When if plankton, plankton goes, we're, we're done. <laughs> we're done. We're yeah. done. We're done. I mean, you're talking about the squid, the fish, the, the mollusks, everything that, that eat plankton, they die. Then birds, foxes, whales, seals, they die. Killer whales die. Polar bears die. I mean, the whole ecosystem dies. Yes, Chris. I mean, we need to keep our eye on this. And I know a lot of people listening to this podcast are definitely conservation heroes and they take a lot of climate and they take climate change very seriously. And so we just need mm-hmm. to keep keep up with that. And we need to keep voting people into office, whichever country you're in, uh, get getting people in office that are going to push agendas forward to help save the climate and to help reduce carbon emissions to help then it helps wildlife it's just and i'm here in the united states obviously we're undoing so many things that were done to help the environment and help fight off climate change it's just horrific and so i definitely made sure i already cast my vote in the 2020 Mm -hmm. election and i hope everybody who's able to in the united states listening to us has done that um Mm -hmm. and yes vote and of course and there's the president and they do all these fed federal regulations and things like that but even your local in your local state uh, are you going to be in a community where they want to uh ban plastic bags or they don't are is your community uh, going to focus more on making it uh bike friendly versus driver friendly or uh public transport friendly versus versus everybody being commuting to work in their cars by themselves and so these are all local changes that can make a big impact even if our federal government isn't on board but hopefully we'll vote somebody in the office that is a more on board Go Biden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, and, and I'm sitting here listening, like, you know, outside the United States, I mean, down in Australia, our, sure. our good friends down there, you know, they have a very conservative government that's pro coal, you mm-hmm. know, and pro development. And, you know, the in Queensland, you know, it's affecting the Coral Sea, which is the Great Barrier Reef. So, you know, wherever you are in the world, really push green policies. We, we need it. We need it. We need it. So, yeah. and, the, and the Belugas need it. Absolutely. And the belugas have come a long way. I mean, historically, except especially for native people, they were uh, hunted as a food source and for oil and other things like that. And the humans made a lot of profit off of them. But throughout the years and through the work of several different groups um, and including Sea Shepherd and in through groups like the International Whaling Commission um, and just different countries fighting for the beluga, uh, a lot of their hunting has been reduced. So that is good. Um, and, and of course I think if communities are open to change is instead of profiting from killing belugas of several communities have started to begin to profit from whale watching. And it's become an important part of the economic activities and recoveries in town like Quebec and Hudson Bay near the Churchill and St. Lawrence rivers. And 
the best place right now in the world to see them is considered uh, Churchill. It's like the beluga capital, the beluga whale capital of the world. And so I'm sure there's other areas around the globe, um, around the northern part of the globe, that could probably compete in that. They just need to put their resources more towards that uh, and get people out there. Because people love going to watch belugas just because, A, they're beautiful, they really stand out. And they're often easily seen because they'll travel in high numbers, depending on what time of year it is. And they're very curious of human presence. So the whale watching boats can often get within a nice distance of them for people that like to photograph wildlife and or just watch their really cool, playful behaviors. And those faces. I know. I know. They are. They're uh, they're fascinating. They're just fascinating whales. Them and the narwhals. And uh, again, I cannot wait till we get to behavior. But first, let's talk about evolution real quick. And, you know, the belugas, the, the super family is Delphinodiae. And this is the largest group of tooth whales. So you have 66 genera, six different families, you know, the... The largest is the killer whale, and then the smallest is what's the smallest porpoise in the world? You know, Vikita. Yes, Vikita. Vikita. There you go, Vikita. So yeah, so that's the the part of this Delphinodia superfamily that belugas fall in. Now the normal family is Monodontinidae, and this is just narwhals and belugas. Mm-hmm. It's like their cousin, which right? I. I yeah, I, I still am fascinated about how like the beluga was adopted into the narwhal family, or was it the other way around? The narwhal was with the I think it was the beluga with the narwhal family, is uh, what they what it was. But anyways, so they're very closely related. The genus of the beluga is Delphina pateris, and species name is Delphina pateris lucas. So that's their species name. We've talked about evolution with whales. Angie, always they started off on land. That's what they believe. The mesnochids, you know, the, the carnivore ungulates. So this carnivore that was hooved, <laughs> just just a funny, I just try to imagine that one. Uh, it was like wolves with hooves. I, I always love talking about these. And um, so they lived about 50 million years ago, subcontinent of India. And then they started going in the waters. And then that's when they eventually uh, became whales. 30 million years ago is when tooth whales and baleen whales separated out. Now, when this diverged happened is, you know, it was like a smaller whale type species. So some went off and became the behemoths we see today, which the blue whale is the largest animal to ever live, period. End of story. Right. Nothing's bigger than a blue whale has lived on Earth. You know, it's just, which is amazing. The, the, the largest animal on earth, which is endangered. So let's save the largest animal ever to live, please. Yes. But, uh, you know, Del- yeah, the Delphinidae, that super family split about 15 million years ago. Then a few million years later is when beluga and narwhals went out. And I thought, found this was interesting. They actually have a beluga ancestor that was located the the fossils near Baja, California, about five million years Uh-oh, ago. Oh, okay. So hmm. it was warm though. It wasn't like cold. It was like a super ice right. age. It was warm. So they actually had relatives that lived in the warmer climates. But belugas eventually, narwhals eventually adapted to that that really cold Arctic 
lifestyle. And after the last ice age, they actually found beluga fossils in Vermont. Right on. So that's pretty far south for them. But think about the ice age, the big polar ice caps would have pushed them further south. Huh. I wonder if there's you know, any in Michigan. They would have been... Yeah, probably. I mean, yeah, yeah, if they have to look at the... Well, the ice age, so polar ice caps. But, you know, I mean, that was 10,000 years ago. Belugas sure. were around, you know, yeah. swimming. Now, the closest relatives to belugas and narwhals are actually porpoises. Mm, so okay. Not, not oceanic dolphins, porpoises. Then the oceanic dolphins are a distant, you know, close relative, but they're more related to porpoises. So it was interesting when you were talking about the dorsal fin, I was thinking porpoises, you know, with their fins and stuff. So now what's interesting about their history, Angie, is how they have adapted, because like I said, the relatives 5 million years ago were swimming in warm waters, but how these whales have been, you know, just either food sources, found their niche, some of their Arctic adaptations. I know white color is a big one, right? That sure, yeah. What I are mean, some of the other ones, yeah. Well, yeah, Chris, that white color is really important to help them camouflage themselves in the polar ice caps, because uh, their main predators are going to be polar bears and killer whales. So, mm-hmm. if they look like a piece of floating ice, then they're less likely to be eaten or be hunted. So. I thought that was pretty interesting. And we already touched a little bit on their blubber, right? We all know whales and dolphins have blubber to help them in the ocean waters. But with a beluga, it's anywhere from 40 to 50% of their weight is fat, blubber. So it's it's much more than um, any of the non-Arctic whales in, that they're related to. And their blubber, if you can envision it, is about 10 centimeters thick. So that's, yeah. that's a lot of, <laughs> that's why they're it's so thick. It's a thick, yeah, a thick they're like squishy and cute. And then Chris, so we touched on a little bit of the fact that they don't have that dorsal iconic porpoise or killer whale, uh, fin on top. Instead, they have this hard dorsal ridge. Uh, it almost looks like a little bit, a little bit of a bump up. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. researchers think that this was a really important adaptation for two factors. Number one is it's going to help them keep their heat closer to the body, closer to the main internal organs, because they don't have to have heat being lost through this really tall dorsal Mm -hmm. fin. So that's a key feature. But also researchers think that it might be used to help them break through the sea ice uh, because it is kind of like a hard ridge-like surface that they can, you know, crack uh, ice up to eight centimeters thick, which might not sound like too much, but uh, it, that's a lot of ice to crack through. And if you need to get a, a breath of f- fresh air, right? Belugas are, are mammals. And they need to, to get air um, every couple minutes, depending mm-hmm. on how deep of dive they're doing. So that ridge might be more helpful to them. Uh, and then another internal adaptation is, that I found just super fascinating, Chris, is their thyroid gland. So your thyroid, I always make the mm-hmm. joke that mm-hmm. like I have a bad thyroid. That's why my metabolism is so slow and I, uh, it's hard for me to lose weight, yada, blada, that whole thing. What are you about? You're so skinny. Oh, uh, well, you're too <laughs> kind. And uh, I, 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 I know how to angle the camera now that I, now that I teach a lot yeah, on yeah, Zoom, yeah. my lectures, I've got yeah. this whole thing. And John made fun of me about it. He's like, what are you doing? Uh, cause I, I set the computer like up on a toilet paper roll and back 
<laughs> and like six months ago when toilet paper was like a high commodity. Yeah, I, I, know, like, yeah, I know. It was really precious. And I was like, yeah. we cannot use this roll of toilet paper for uh, <laughs> for ourselves. It has It's like my computer prop. And he's like, you're ridiculous. Yeah. But then I showed him. I showed him the difference of elevating the, the camera up and looking down. And <laughs> and now he totally does it all the time. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, see? see oh, I told you. So anyways, you're too kind. But anyways, back to the beluga's thyroid. Yeah, well, it, they're chunky yeah, yeah. and they're supposed to be chunky, but what what research has shown is that their thyroid gland is large and it's larger than a mammal of the same size. In fact, their thyroid weighs three times more than that of a horse. Wow. Okay. So it's yeah, it's so big, it's big and, yeah. and and what mm-hmm. this does is this helps them maintain greater metabolism yeah. in the summer when it's like living in the ri- uh, river estuaries, and then of course uh, helps keep them warm too in the winter time. Mm-hmm. So they have these these physical traits to help basically generate heat within their bodies and then also not lose it. Right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's interesting when you're talking about the ridge because I was thinking of the narwhals and the tusk, you know, which is their long tooth and help break up some ice so they can get those those breathe holes because they do travel under the ice. And, you know, it's like I, I know there's been a story or I think I've seen a couple of stories of like belugas trapped and people going in to help them get yeah. out. But yeah, I'm a little like too, it, I, I just think of that and yeah. I'm like it's too claustrophobic. I, I, I know I, I do too. Yeah, it's like, ah. <laughs> Whenever you see those like Arctic divers that are going like under oh, the ice, yeah. and that's how they get these amazing yeah. uh, photo shoots of belugas and narwhals and things like that, I'm always like, uh, uh-uh, uh, you guys, you know, that you are heroes. I, I could not do right, that. Right, right, no way. Right, right. No, it's it, yeah, it's fascinating. Now, now belugas, I anywhere lives. I saw one stat, fifty years old. I, the NOAA website had them living up to eighty years old. So mm-hmm. that's pretty lengthy. I mean, that that's that's long time. Uh, for a whale, you know, I mean, I mean, for a smaller whale, I guess, compared to we, we do know the last whale we did was the bowhead whale a year ago, and that's like 200 plus years old, <laughs> so, right? No, yeah. it's pretty crazy, yeah, yeah, Chris. I think the, the average is like was thought to be around 32 years, um, for females and about 40 for males. But there was a study that came out in uh, 2006 that basically did radiocarbon dating of mm-hmm. the dentin, that's like the, dement, mm-hmm. the dental cement in their teeth. And then they were able to show that it might be, that there was estimated that they could live up to 70 or 80 years. But then another study came out and said, well, actually, the, the way that their dentin layers wear off, it doesn't layer, it's not like one layer per year, like a ring of a tree. Mm-hmm. It might be a couple. And so now they're like, okay, maybe it's not 80 years. So this is why it's research. There's still yeah. Uh, yeah. a lot we, we don't necessarily know. Um, but yeah, they're not going to live as long as a bowhead whale. Uh, no. But they're also going to, they're, you know, a, a marine mammal. And they're going to have a, a decent life size, assuming that they can do all their natural behaviors like uh, mm-hmm. hunting and uh, finding the fish that they need and not being poisoned uh, by the fish that they eat. Exactly. And then some of the things, some, some statistics, uh, they can dive up to 700 meters looking for food. Dives last up to 20 minutes, but they have been recorded as long as 25 minutes. And they swim about six miles per hour or nine kilometers per hour. So you know. Yeah, they're not the fastest. They're not going to win any uh, no, no. 
ocean no. races. That's for sure. They're more of this, which once again goes kind of along with this like cartoonish like character of uh, Bailey Beluga in and uh, in, in the Finding Dory yeah, movies yeah. in general. Just kind of tra la la. They're just just swimming along, but they, as far as their senses go. They definitely have an acute sense of hearing, and we'll talk a lot mm-hmm. about that when we mm-hmm. move into echolocation. But their auditory cortex is really, really developed, and uh, they can hear sounds within a range of 1.2 to 120 kilohertz, uh, where for us, we're like 0.02 to 20 kilohertz mm-hmm. So for humans. So much, much larger auditory range of sounds that they can hear. And as far as their vision now, their vision is not going to win any, any records. Uh, it's it's much poor compared to other dolphin and whale species, but they can definitely see, of course. And I found it interesting, Chris, that uh, cetaceans see only in black and white. So Yeah, I know. I saw that. I was like, yeah. what? But it does make sense. I mean, whales, they, they do use their eyesight, but they use a lot more than that. It's the echolocation. I know we're, we're, we're going to get to the melon and, and that is a very important, uh, you know, sense for them. Like we go back to sperm whale, them diving in the depths, you know, or the, the curved beak whale, which we'll have to cover at some point the, you know, the deepest diving whale in the world or mammal in the world, you know, that goes that deep. They don't, you know, eyesight does nothing for you. It doesn't do much. Yeah. So in the murky depths. And Chris, along those same lines is belugas, like other tooth whales, don't have the sensory olfactor bulbs and nerves in their brain, which tells researchers that they probably can't smell. Uh, There's probably not a need for it uh, because they are so good at echolocating and they do have decent vision for the most part. But what they do have is chemoreceptors for different tastes. And they can mm-hmm, detect mm-hmm. the presence of blood and water and react to it. So we know they can taste, but we don't think they can smell. So it's not like sharks, though, that, you know, it's like. <laughs> yeah, it's not like a, the, yeah, right, yeah, like yeah. from miles then, away, one drop of blood. No, no, but they can definitely. That's going to hone uh, in, They yeah. definitely have some sense of taste. And I know we want to get to the melon because that's very important. But I think before we get there, we got to talk about this unfused cervical vertebrate because that, that again makes them what's charismatic that they move their heads around we talked about that river dolphins because again another animal that sight's not great murky waters you know navigating around so i imagine the belugas and narwhals do this too that cervical vertebrate not being fused allows them a lot of flexibility with the neck right and that's kind of that helps them with this echolocation doesn't it Oh, yeah. I mean, it definitely improves their field of movement, helps catching prey, avoiding predators. And then, yeah, they can move their head uh, without turning their whole body, right? Like humans. And that definitely enables their echolocation to be that much more accurate. So you're saying be more accurate with the echolocation with this melon thing on this head. Oh, I mean, I've read it too. Yeah, it's I know melon you're time. to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm interested to talk about it too. Well, it's, it's just really so cool. unique. It's this the yeah. shape of their head in this this extreme bulbous area of their forehead is it's just large and it's prominent. And you have to think in nature, you know, okay, here's here's the form, what's the function? And mm-hmm. it's just this this round melon is in front of their blow blow hole and it 
even over like almost overhangs their like rostrum, like their nose area. It's composed of mostly fats uh, in general. And of course, yes, I dorked out on like what types of fats and what percentage of fats. And I was mm-hmm, looking up mm-hmm, fats. Mm-hmm. I was looking up uh, fatty acids, short chain fatty acids I'd never heard of. But <laughs> yes. that's a different yeah. pod for a different day. Uh, I don't think anybody besides a few of my nutrition dork friends would care about that. Yeah, yeah. But the fun facts that everybody can get behind is that a beluga's melon is much more flexible compared and larger and more flexible compared to other whale species. Okay. It's thought that the melon helps facilitate sound production. And so when the whale is making sounds, which we'll talk a lot about when we get to vocalization and communication, it will change shapes with those sounds. And the beluga is able to change the shape of the melon by blowing air around its sinuses to help focus these sounds that it's emitting. And so once again, it's not going to be this huge dramatic, like its whole forehead isn't going to shift left or shift right, but it does help give it some of that charismatic, uh, just cute, charming little face. uh, If you've ever had the ability to see one in person or just from watching videos and things like that, or watch training sessions on YouTube, is it, it's really just quite uh, a fun, fun feature on their forehead, but it has this really incredible physiological importance. And so what researchers do know is that incoming sounds are probably picked up through the lower jaw of the beluga. And then they head to a region called the auditory belay. From there, they're processed in the brain, understood. And when a outgoing call is emitted. It's a little bit more complex. It's going to come more from the dorsal part of the head uh, to several different uh, areas there, including the dorsal bursae and of course the melon and the phonic lips. And then even the blowhole is somewhat involved. And these outgoing sounds pass through the melon, which basically acts like, I don't know, it was described somewhere as like an acoustic lens to mm-hmm. basically focus the sounds like a beam, like mm-hmm. like something uh, as I'm describing it now, I'm like, this is like a superhero power. Like what yeah, in the world, is. right? It so yeah. it's like, oh, I'm going to shoot this beam of sound through here and then one way or the other way. Um, these beams basically go forward and into the water, right? Into their surrounding mm-hmm. water uh, so they can listen for an echo back. Uh, it's crazy. And, um, and so once these sound waves are transmitted through the melon, they uh, they travel at about 1.6 kilometers per second, which is four times faster than speed that's traveling, the sound of speed when it's in air. So it travels faster and wa- sound travels faster in water. Sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And well, remember we talked about just really quick that the, the, I think it was with the sperm whale, the amount of power, because it does travel, fa- it can travel faster through water, but it needs incredible amounts of power behind it. So that big melon can push that beam so fast in a certain direction. That's insane. That's it's insane. insane. I'm talking about yeah, it's, what they it's, can do. It's, it's yeah, superhero yeah. stuff, right? I mean, yeah. it, and basically too, so they, they, they send out that, you know, the beam of sound waiting for it to hit, whether it's a, a polar ice cap or a fish or a predator or whatever it is in the water. And, Basically, they wait for it to return uh, so they can interpret it and they can figure out the distance, the speed, the size, the shape, uh, the internal 
structure of the object? Like, is it plastic? You know, I mean, that, obviously they don't have those words for it, but is it is it something that they're familiar with? Is it ice? Is it this? And how, if it is ice, how thick is it? It's just crazy, incredible. And it's how they, of course, find these different pockets of uh, in, in the ice to breathe in or thin areas where they can poke holes um, to make their own breathing hole. It's just, it's just crazy. And, and on this podcast, Chris and I have covered a few different animals that echolocate. Uh, we just did the uh, lesser short-tailed bat from New Zealand. And it's still it's just so fascinating. I'm sitting here, you know, a month later, just still my own melon is blown by thinking about <laughs> how this marine mammal does this and why it evolved this and how it and and it just makes, although I, here I am looking at the melon of a beluga before I started researching this podcast, being like, oh, isn't that cute? And now I'm seeing yeah. it as this like physiological organ of superpower, yeah. basically, you know, it it's is. so it, cool. It's amazing. It's so cool. It, yeah. Their physiology just, yeah, more so because the narwhals was more, that tooth is just crazy, you know, but mm-hmm. belugas, it's like that melon is crazy. It's just to survive in the Arctic and do what they right. do. Right. So and then how I mentioned earlier, how they can like move the melon a little bit too. So mm-hmm. then they can be even more accurate when they're shooting out this uh, sound beam. So it's just, it's nuts. I love it. Yeah. It's fascinating. And it helps them. It helps them find their food. You know, these are opportunistic feeders. It's going to depend on where they're living at the time, you know, where they're located in the Arctic, but generally a wide variety, obviously of fish, squid, uh, octopus, salmon, shrimp, crabs, herring they like, cod, uh, anything they can really catch with that echolocation. And even though they do have teeth, they don't obviously chew. I mean, the teeth aren't like, you know, chompers, but to grab and then they swallow whole, right? So, right. So they're, they're not, like they're not super sharp. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. So not shredding things or anything like that. But some of the behaviors, Angie, like some of the reading, I mean, we, this could be a whole podcast on its own. Just some of the, the stuff with these, these animals. I mean, it's amazing, amazing, amazing family groups. Oh, it's just everything. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, number one, the first thing that comes to mind when we think of a cetacean or whale or dolphin is how intelligent they are. And so since you're talking about nutrition, just really quick, it's important to note that there has been documentation of them group hunting together, which we think of that as we've talked about in wolves and of course, orcas as a very complex, uh, cognitive planning, implementing, working together, communicating with one another type behavior that is, is, is definitely indicative of higher cognition. Um, and this behavior has been seen in the estuaries of the Amur river where the uh, belugas will work together to feed on basically salmon. And you'll see individuals, six, eight or so belugas join together and surround these shoals or groups of fish to basically prevent their escape and then take turns of, okay, you go, George. Okay, you go, Betsy. You know, take turns eating them. And and this really coordinated uh, group hunting, which is quite quite awesome. Um, most of the documentation is them hunting alone, of course, but it is, they are very adaptable, right? They're very flexible. So it's just really interesting. Um, and then of course, too, 
Belugas are really social or gregarious is Mm -hmm. the technical term. Um, They can form groups of 10 animals on average. And then sometimes in the summertime, they'll gather in these large groups of either 100, sometimes even 1,000 belugas. How cool would that be to see? That's where that's where amazing, we need some whale amazing, watching uh, yeah. places, right? Um, they'll gather in like basically shallow, shallow coastal waters or estuaries to do some of this, this group hunting and just the fishing's really good. So... And they all, you know, they all work together and cohesive. They, they all get along. They move together. And so... Uh, there's different types of groups, and what researchers know about them in the wild is the pods aren't very permanent. Like if you think of an orca family, right? The family tree mm-hmm. is just mm-hmm. really, really, really important. It's matriarchal, things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But with belugas, they can be grouped into three categories. There's nurseries. That's usually just going to be mothers and calves and maybe some babysitters. We'll talk about that. That's a fun behavior coming up. Uh, bachelors is another group, which of course is just males and then mixed groups, which is going to have ages and different sex classes. Uh, and so they're, they're really just easy going, I guess, get along, go with the flow. There were studies of where some of these tag belugas, you know, one week would be with this pod. And then literally like next week we're like, Oh, I'm going to go hang out with this pod. <laughs> it kind of reminded, yeah, yeah. yeah, it reminded me of like the bonobos of the sea, right? Bonobo monkeys are known to have yeah, a very right, like right, right, right. peaceful society and just like get along with everybody. And I think that a beluga is very much, very much like that. Uh, just very ca- yeah. calm. Um, and then of course, as far as either seeing the animals in the, in the aquarium or of course, whale watching, which is what I would highly, highly support, uh, is they're really playful. So they're sociable, they chase each other, they play fight, they rub against each other. They're like a lot of tactile communication. Uh, Now they don't technically like breach and jump as far as if you think of other humpback whales or even orcas and of course dolphins, right, are very active jumping alongside your boat. They don't typically do that, um, but they will be constantly vocalized and swimming around over and under each other. And they've been known to like play with objects in the water either together, like if you think of two dogs playing tug of war Mm -hmm. or something, or by themselves. And they've been reported playing with woods, plants, dead fish. And then they also create bubbles a lot of times in their own bubbles for fun that they'll create that they'll play in. And so, as you said, you've seen them before under human care as well Mm -hmm. as I have. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're just really curious creatures and they seem to be um, drawn towards people in boats um, it, whether it's in the wild or an aquarium setting. And before I touch on some of their communication, because it's just another reason why they're so darn smart and amazing, but these bubbles that they blow, I was always assumed to be like, oh, well, they're playing, which there's definitely an element of play to it. But in a recent study of belugas under human care, it showed that yes, they use bubbles as like for fun, right? So for play and enjoyment, but Sudden bubble bursts uh, could be actually indicative indicative of a defensive reaction, while if they're matching their bubble rings together, it's more of a social bond. Like, hey, let's blow some bubbles <laughs> together, and so they only they only want to do that with friends, and so yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. it's more it's more meaningful than as researchers actually study it and look at patterns yeah. and trends. It means more than just our surface, like oh, they're silly and they're playing, mm-hmm. uh, and so I think it's a lot of a lot of things like that, like the more they're studied, which of course is very hard to do uh, in the wild and the elements that they live in, um, 
And so a lot of it is under human care. And even then still, there's a, a ton that's, that's unknown about them. Uh, but what has been seen a lot in the literature is their vocalizations. Belugas are by far the most vocal cetaceans. They have voices that are really loud. <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in fact, they're nicknamed the sea canary. So I thought that was cute, right? They were the white whale, the melonhead, and the sea canary. And these vocalizations are used for several different purposes. We already talked about the echolocation, right? Like sending out sounds, clicks, things like that, letting them bounce back and interpreting where an object is and what the object's made of. But they also make a lot of clicks and a lot of burst calls. And thus far, researchers have documented about 11 distinct beluga sounds that include, of course, like I said, whistles, clicks, but also mews, bleats, chirps, tones. And in order to do this, they basically produce sound by manipulating that dorsal bursae area of their nasal passageway and reflect the sound through the melon, as I mentioned. And then not including echolocation, obviously that's for like hunting and navigating type purposes. But some of the other sounds like whistles have been shown to indicate social communication while clicks can be used for foraging and, of course, for navigation. And there's squeaks that can talk about, um, they can be more like maternal or contact-oriented, social-oriented. And then in 2015, there was a study that basically demonstrated that belugas were found to have stable vocalizations throughout time, but they varied among different geographic locations. So these sounds are referred to as vowels. Like they're, of course, they're not using A-E-I-O-U, but they're comparable to vowels is how they're used repetitively, but they're stable throughout time, but different from different local regions. Hmm. And so once once more, that needs to be further studied to understand just like the, the actual depths of it. But it is pretty crazy and really, really unique. And then there's belugas that have been documented to mimic human speech. For instance, there's one whale, I guess his name was Noc or NOC, I don't know. He Mm. lived at the National Marine Mammal Foundation in San Diego, and he was able to mimic human speech. In fact, a diver was once convinced to climb out of the whale's tank when he was cleaning because he thought he heard another person instruct him to get out, use the word out. Mm. And so he left, and then they... Lo and behold, they they realized that it was actually the beluga whale that was mimicking a human speech. And he did this on multiple occasions, and he could basically intimidate patterns and frequencies of human speech, like a parrot, if you will. Uh, wow, after wow. a while, he stopped making wow. the sounds. He was like, I'm not talking to you guys. You guys are not listening. <laughs> <laughs> you're done, not, you're yeah. not safe. You're not saving <laughs> the planet. Like, geez, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, clearly, clearly there's still a lot that, that we need to learn about them that is just, uh, you know, crazy fascinating out there. And I just want to give a quick little, um, a little demonstration of what they sound like.
Okay, there's like five, six sounds in there, five sounds in there. What was that last one? I don't know. It was super... <laughs> that last one was crazy. Yeah, yeah I mean, but the, well, up to 11 different sounds, a lot of different mm-hmm. tones, and uh, the, uh, one of those sounds was mimicking a whistle from one of the trainers. Mm-hmm. That was Beethoven, the beluga. Uh, we can put the, put the clip on our show notes. So, yeah, but the, you had, you had um, some squawks in there, and you had some whistles. So... Yeah, just, I mean, really, really impressive repertoire. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. Pardon the pun. Amazing. Yeah, it's fun stuff. I knew behavior was, was going to be fun with the species. And uh, the, the range of sounds is amazing. Now, repro, what do we know about beluga whales? Well, Chris, I think it's important to keep in mind with reproduction uh, and is that they it takes them a while to mature. So their sexual maturity can be anywhere between like 9 and 15 years of age. Uh, and it just depends on their size and where they live and things like that. But on average, a female will give birth around eight and a half years and then her fertility will start to decrease. So when we talk about populations and like having them rebound and things like that, they're not going to be, they're not going to be one of these fat, quickly rebounding species, right? They take a long time to mature. And then when they do, they only have babies for a certain amount of time, um, every one, every three years in general. And then I learned a crazy fun new fact I did not know. Belugas eventually undergo menopause. In fact, there's never been a record hmm. birth over beluga of a beluga older than 41 years old. So I knew that um, I knew that killer whales went through menopause, which is why the grandmother hypothesis is so important from them uh, for them and their and their which is one of the theories of having the grandma around in the orcas is so, so important. It's called the grandmother hypothesis for them to impart their wisdom, similar to our human culture. We all love our nanas yeah, yeah, and yeah. grandmas around mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. So I knew that killer whales did that and short fin pilot whales. And so I always was just under the impression that it was just the two of them. But a recent study came out in 2018 that discovered that belugas in narwhals also go through menopause. So it's humans, mm-hmm. belugas, narwhals, killer whales, and short fin pilot whales are the only species that we know of that go mm. through, the, the females go through menopause. Now, I was wow. not able to find out any um, hypothesis of why this is important in belugas. Like I said, in, we've talked about it in orcas before, uh, but as far as um, helping the young, helping rear mm-hmm. the young, basically. Right, right. But Anyways, just super fascinating. And so they, they're kind of their, their time to create new life and gestate is, is, is not that long of window, really. So they don't produce a ton of offspring. But when they are ready to mate, that's going to typically happen in February to April. Uh, the males are going to be, they're high of test, in t- testosterone. They're going to chase down the females and make a real vocal show. Lots of different fun noises there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he makes a lot of, you know, funny visual displays, throwing his tail up and down violently, moving his head, 
um, as he vibrates his melon. So towards mm-hmm. he like sends mm-hmm. off a laser beam vibration towards any other male coming the direction. <laughs> That's a little bit uh, yes, exaggerated. Yes. That's how I envision it. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah. something like that. And then well, then 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 the females like, whoa, he's you know he's using that melon the right way. And uh, basically, <laughs> they swim in harmony. They caress each other yeah. um, until the magic happens, and they breed. So, and she will only consent to um, to breed with one male. So um, she's she's picky. Uh, but what happens is once she is uh, uh, impregnated, what's fascinating, Chris, is we don't really know whether or not a beluga whale uh, has a delayed implantation or not. Mm-hmm. So. It's estimated that their gestation period is between 12 and four and a half months. Well, that's a, or up to, excuse me, almost 16 months. So that's a big, a big window. Uh, and so some researchers say, well, it's got to be because of delayed implantation. And then others say, well, we don't, we know that that hasn't been proven yet. Right. And, and science is all about proof. So really fascinating um, as far as that we know so much about belugas. They live under human care and we still don't, we still don't know this about them. Um, but it is important to note that beluga, uh, uh, reproduction of belugas under human care has not been successful because we don't know that much about them. And so uh, it is very controversial. Sometimes belugas are still caught up in the wild for uh, different marine parks and things like that. And so I think we touch a little bit on that uh, when we in the, in the Sea Shepherd uh, interview that we do. And just yeah. in general, yeah. it's, you know, with... With other marine animals, they're typically just bred uh, in um, under human care. But yeah, the belugas, for some reason, they just don't do well with that. So at any rate, when a young is born, it's gray in color, mm-hmm. and it's born mm-hmm. during the summer months when the food is high around May through July. The calf is pretty developed and swims right along with mom. Um, and what I found really interesting is calf definitely hangs out with mom for a long time, but it's typically in a nursery pod with other moms and other babies, but there's often a young teenage nursemaid, which hmm. I could have used one of those. Ta- no, I I'm, try- I'm trying to get my niece. I'm like, Bailey, Kylie, come on, come <laughs> yes. on down and help me out. I need a teenage nurse nursemaid. You need some, you need some summer holiday money. Um, but anyway, so that they help. And in fact, it has been documented too of allo parenting, right? Some of this care by others. Um, but what's crazy fascinating is that there has been allo nursing uh, with some of these nursemaids to the point that the nursemaid or uh, will actually make milk, like for long term production. Oh wow! So it's okay. and this has been seen yeah. in other animals, but it's it, this behavior was noticed under human care, of course. Uh, researchers don't know if it exists in the wild, but it's just such a physiological phenomenon that they think that it might happen in the wild as well. So, but what they do know in the wild is this, this babysitter will often, um, travel with the mom and like right next to each other. Like it's always like they swim together. Like the baby stays in between the two females as they're helping Mm -hmm. pull them through the current up these estuaries and different things that they're doing. So, uh, it's really important. And then Calf will stay with mom for uh, and lactate for about one and a half to two years. So that's some real parental investment there. Investment, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so that's the thing is it's like she's only having babies maybe one every three years, one every four years. So, yeah, they kind of have a slow uh, growth rate as far as their population size. Well, I mean, you're talking about 
a lot of parental investment, a you know long generation interval, especially these longer mammals that live a long time. So you know with beluga's conservation, it, IUCN and other places have them as least concern. I saw them as near threatened. Uh, World Wildlife Fund has them as as near threatened. I think as we see the Arctic ice disappear, they will slip closer and closer towards extinction or those ratings is, you know, getting endangered and critically endangered, things like that. There's only an estimated 136,000 mature whales in, in the entire world. So yeah, we, we, we've had animals on here where there's only a few hundred left, which is insane for a whole species, but you know, still belugas. I mean, that's not millions of them. There's, there's only 136,000 over the, the great big ocean and their threats. I mean, oil and gas now is being exploited up there. You know, all the, the oil and gas industry is racing up to the Arctic since the ice isn't covering as much to exploit it, which leads to more problems, you know, and again, more plastics and eh. then, you know, noise pollution with the boats and everything like that. So those are the threats facing them. I will just quickly mention, because Captain Paul Watson, we had on, we, we don't, address beluga whaling and and i didn't really want to go there with him because they are being whaled by aborigines aboriginal populations you know in canada in the united states and russia uh, there are belugas that are hunted by the native you know native americans that have hunted them for generations so canada roughly 400 belugas are taken per year uh, something similar in Greenland, maybe 300 belugas are taken per year. Russia, maybe 100 belugas are taken per year. So, you know, they, they are hunted there, but it's not really a focus of anti-whaling because those are natives, peoples that lives depend on the whales. So we can have that discussion another day. Now, organization this week, I think it's kind of a no-brainer, right? <laughs> Yes, of course, Chris. I'm excited to talk a little bit more in detail about Sea Shepherd Global and their Mm -hmm. ocean conservation that they do. And Chris will put it up on the show notes. And of course, we have this amazing interview with Paul Watson, their founder, Um, but seashepherd.org. And Chris was obviously just talking about whaling. And Sea Shepherd Global is known very well for their anti-whaling movement and for strategies to basically help reduce and almost entirely stop. In fact, uh, Paul Watson was saying about 95 to 99% of whaling that was going on has stopped uh, more or less mm-hmm. due to some of the efforts that this organization has made. Some of the mm-hmm. some of the drastic and interesting campaigns and tactics that they've used that are documented on, um, on whale wars on that series. But Sea Shepherd Global goes way beyond just stopping whaling and um, fighting for whales, which I'm glad they do that. But they also are just in general the front line of ocean defense. The, this mm-hmm. this amazing nonprofit movement, if you will, global movement that he started, which that was the history behind it, was just super fascinating in the interview. Around the world, in I think 44 different countries, there's people that are taking action to help save all aspects of marine life in the ocean and also the oceans themselves. And so I love the, um, the anti-whaling movement that they started with, but this road that they're on now is, is so, so much bigger than that. So please check out that interview when it drops, you're going to just love it. And then also check out seashepherd.org 
follow them on social media. They have a big presence uh, and they'll also keep you informed of what they're doing and how you can get involved. Once again, it's, it's kind of like a grassroots movement when anybody can get involved. You can start a local Sea Shepherd chapter in your hometown where you live mm -hmm. and, and just start campaigning for saving ocean life and the oceans themselves. Yeah, no, it's it's an amazing organization. And you listen to that interview, and he talks about volunteers, accepting volunteers around the world, going out there and fighting for our oceans. So so check it, it out. It made me want to get out of yeah. Oh. yeah. It made me want to get on, on the boat and be a pirate, that's for sure. Yeah, it's for sure, for sure. And he does he does say we don't break any laws. Like they don't break any laws, even though the big business Correct. goes after them. They have not broken any laws. So conservation tip of the week, it's again reducing our carbon footprint, protecting our poles. You know, the Arctic is in dire, dire straits. So we all need to reduce our carbon, period. So I'm gonna remind you again, try to go meatless one day a week. During this pandemic, being locked indoors, you know, being creative, I have more time to cook, try different things. I'm actually going meatless like two or three days a week. I just, I just noticed that I, I don't eat a lot, a lot of meat, uh, especially the red meats, uh, beef and lamb. I mean, I still love them. I, I still have it occasionally. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not a vegetarian or vegan and bless you if you are, but you know, those are the, those are the animal species that are contributing the most to greenhouse gases. So, you know, I've reduced my beef consumption greatly, but I've actually been going meatless two to three days a week and, and it's been great. You know, I'm eating a lot more fish, which is a whole nother issue. But if you do this, because I, I pulled up some numbers and just, just to show you the impact this could have, if everybody in the United States went vegetarian for just one day, just one day, skipped meat for one day, you know, the U.S. would save 100 billion gallons of water billion gallons of water and reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 1.2 million tons of carbon dioxide. Wow. That's just one day a week. If everybody just yeah. like these to meatless Mondays or something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, we love meatless Mondays. And, and I also, uh, depending on where you live and what type of phone you have, I have an, I use an app called meal lime, M E A L I M E. It's free unless you upgrade, of course. And I just select the vegetarian. I put the setting on vegetarian and pull up how many meals I want. I usually select about three to four meals a week. And it gives me all the recipes to pick from. And so I pick my top three or four meals. And then it gives me a grocery list. And then I off yeah. I go. And so it's really up my vegetarian cooking repertoire. And there's a million other apps I'm sure that our users could recommend to help do that. But things like that are just so easy. And I, and I don't yeah. even miss it. No, no, no. I mean, you know, a, a vegetable. Curry oh, and what, so Chris, what, what was that? Uh, what was that fake chicken you were talking about? You got to okay, give yeah, a no, shout so out. These plant, yeah, these these plant based uh, meats. So proteins. Nando's here, mm -hmm. the proteins in the UK. It's a very popular restaurant, chicken restaurant. They actually have a plant based uh, chicken. It, it's chicken like. It is delicious. It is so delicious so these oh, plant -based meats, on, i wonder if i can get it yeah here in the states i wonder if i can get it online yeah. or something else well the impossible burger is really good right it's, it's i've had that impossible yep burger. that's mm -hmm. it's very that's good great very good yeah it's very good in the states so you know you, you do that one day a week you're gonna help you're gonna make a big impact you know if you do it two to three days of, times a week and then there's other health benefits things like that so anyways conservation tip of the week 
favorite species of so many. Uh, one of my new favorites, a, a wonderful animal. Check out that interview. Your jaw will be dropped too. It's just amazing. He's such a great speaker. So, uh, but thanks for following. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing this episode with your friends because I know you're going to do it for us. But, you know, I can't wait to, to get back with our new species. Uh, see you soon. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.